Well, good evening. Um, something that not all of you might not know about me, uh, I love music. Listen to a lot of music growing up. The, the favorite uh, decade for me for music is uh, the 70s. And I'm sure all of us have songs that we can listen to over and over and over again, for decades even, and never get tired of hearing them. Now, one of those songs for me uh, was sung by a guy named Meatloaf. That's right, Meatloaf. And that song was uh, Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. And I don't just enjoy listening to songs. Um, I love singing along uh, to the songs also. And I'm sure all of us have songs that we like to sing along to. And, and I'm sure we think, you know, I sound absolutely nothing like the sound coming out of the radio. But I'm sure we also have songs that we sing along to. And, and perhaps it's in our pitch and our key, and we think, you know, I, I sound pretty much, you know, like the person who's singing the song. Now, one of those songs for me uh, is sung by my all-time favorite group. I loved listening to this group when I was growing up, Lionel Richie and the Commodores, and uh, the song was uh, is, is Three Times a Lady. And I would sing Three Times a Lady to my, my wife, and uh, I'm sure, I've never asked her this, but I'm sure if you asked her after the service, she'll say... Come to think of it, yeah. Um, I, I, I bet that when I began to sing Three Times a Lady to Sharon, she would think, you know, the radio's on. <laughs> you ask her, you see. Now, also growing up, I spent lots of time watching television. I enjoyed comedies. And now my brother, Chris, and I, we would watch this mindless but creative slapstick humor of the Three Stooges. Three Stooges. We loved the Three Stooges. And then as I got older, there was another comedy that I would watch regularly, and it had as its main characters uh, two, two women and a man, and uh, it was called Three's Company. Now, all of you here, uh, you're intelligent folk, you're, you're thinking folk, you, you've gathered here to hear the Bible and to learn about Jesus, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what does three times a lady and three stooges and three's company have to do with Hebrews chapter 9? And I wonder how many of you have made the connection already. Uh, it, 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 it's plainly obvious. It's plainly obvious. And I'll tell you what the connection is. When I do, I guarantee you every one of you will say, of course. So what does three times a lady, three stooges, and three's company have to do with Hebrews chapter 9? The answer, ready for this? is absolutely nothing. But as we study Hebrews chapter 9 tonight, there are three points I want you to remember. So I got the number three in your mind. And all three points begin with the letter C. Uh, we're going to discuss covenant, ceremony, and Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, please help us to rejoice, to understand more about Jesus Christ and our relationship to him as a result of your words for us in Hebrews chapter 9. Amen. Well, let me read for you, and you follow along, please, in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 5. It's coming up on the screen also. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense 
and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that it budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. So this these passages are about the first covenant. Now, the first covenant is like the donut spare tire. Now, cars in America began to carry a donut spare. Uh, it, was, it was a spare tire that was smaller than a normal tire. Uh, it saved money. It saved space. And because it was a little bit lighter, it also improved gas mileage a little bit. But this donut spare tire had limitations that far outweighed the benefits. Uh, for example, the donut spare, if you had it on your car, you, had a, you could only travel at a maximum of 80 kilometers per hour. And it was only designed to be used up to 70 miles, and it would blow out after that. And donut spares had a negative effect on braking and steering, which are quite important parts of driving, obviously. See, the donut spare was designed to be put on your car, and you were supposed to drive it straight to a garage, and it was supposed to be replaced immediately by a full-sized uh, tire. So you cannot drive on a donut spare, for example, from here to Manchester. Nor can you depend on the first covenant to get you from earth to heaven. I've used the donut spare, and I remember when I used the donut spare, or when I would see a donut spare on a car in America, you always thought of the full-sized tire. You knew the donut was limited and was only in use until it could be replaced by the full-sized tire. That is like the first covenant. Let's see that again in verse 1 of uh, Hebrews chapter 9. It said, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. Uh, turn over to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, and let's read something about that earthly sanctuary. Hebrews 8, 5 says, They... The priests, that is, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. See, this earthly sanctuary was a copy of the eternal reality. And Moses had to make everything exactly as God said, because this, this earthly copy served as a pattern to teach people about the heavenly reality. So let's see what the tabernacle symbolized. Well, in verse 2, the, there's a lampstand mentioned. Now, the lampstand was gold, and gold represented deity. The lampstand itself represented Jesus, who is the light of the world. Uh, the table was overlaid with gold, and on it was bread. The bread was actually called the bread of the presence. It represented the presence of Jesus Christ. These are words, for example, from Jesus in John 6, 51. He said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. That's the reality. The bread in the tabernacle did not give life, but it pointed to the true bread, Jesus, who does give life. In verse 4, we find the mention of the altar of incense, and that's a reminder of Jesus' constant intercession for us. 
and we have the mention of the Ark of the Covenant, and with its mercy seat, and also in verse 5, with its atonement cover, together that represented the finished work of Jesus, his resurrection, and his sitting at the right hand of God. Also, you notice, uh, what verse is that? Verse 4. There are reminders in the ark of why we actually need God's mercy. Why Jesus had to sacrifice his life, why he had to rise again. Uh, There was the the gold jar of manna. And in Exodus chapter 16, we're not going to turn there, but you read about the manna in Exodus chapter 16. The manna represented human grumbling against God. Aaron's staff, it budded because there was rebellion in the camp. And the people went to Moses and said, listen, we, we have as much power and authority and knowledge as Aaron. And God said, bring all your staffs. And the staff that buds is the staff of the person I've represented. And Aaron's staff budded. And then, of course, God's law, constantly broken, constantly rejected. The tabernacle has, in verse 2, uh, this room called the holy place. That represents fellowship or communion with God on earth. And then it makes mention of the most holy place. The most holy place represents human fellowship with God in heaven. Now, the way to the most holy place is blocked by a veil or a curtain and protected by death. You die immediately if you go through the veil into the most holy place and you are not the high priest. And it is not the one time in a year you are permitted as high priest to go through that veil into the most holy place. That's the pattern, and that's what it represents. Now look at verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 9. In verse 8 it says, The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. In other words, the way into heaven has not yet been disclosed. Remember the donut tire will not get you to Manchester. Well, the sacrifices offered in the, temp- in the tabernacle do not get you to heaven. It was only when Jesus sacrificed his life, then the way to heaven was universally revealed. And it wasn't through the veil in the temple or the tabernacle. It was through Jesus Christ himself. So in verse 1, we see that the first covenant had an earthly sanctuary, but also it had regulations for worship. Let's have a quick look at one aspect of those regulations. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 16. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 16. This is speaking of Jesus, and it says this about Jesus. We read that Jesus has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. The regulation that the tabernacle had to follow, that the Jews had to follow, was that there were only certain descendants of Levi who could serve as priests. And that regulation was inherently weak. Look, for example, at Hebrews 7.11. It says, if perfection 
could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the law was given, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek? Now, Jesus, like Melchizedek, Jesus had no beginning and no end. His life was indestructible. That was not the Levitical priest. It is said of them in verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 7. Now, there have been many of those priests, the Levitical priests. Why? Since death prevented them from continuing in office. And look at verse 28 of Hebrews chapter 7, where it says, For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak. That's quite a weakness, isn't it? You die. <laughs> and what a dying or dead man can offer and ultimately give, therefore, is limited. It cannot be eternal because they are not eternal. These dying priests performed ceremonies in the tabernacle that were limited in power. So let's look at our second C, ceremony. Let's look at the ceremony that these dying priests performed. And back in Hebrews chapter 9, let's look at verses 6 through 10. It said, when everything had been arranged like this, that's talking about Moses following the pattern God laid out for him on the mountain, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Again, uh, look at verse 9. Um, no, we looked at verse 8, but verse 9 speaks of a, a clear conscience before God. Let's Understand what this means, because there are tons of folk, I tell you, there are tons of folk who think they have a clear conscience before God. There are tons of people who feel little or no guilt before God, little or no shame. They feel their sin is small and inconsequential. See, but a clear conscience is not how you or I or anyone feels towards God. A clear conscience is actual, physically being clean and spotless before God. Look at verse 10. The ceremonies are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Remember, the donut spare is only in your car temporarily until you get a new full-size tire. The old order, the old covenant, is only in place until the new order comes. The new order is initiated by the new high priest, 
who comes in the order of Melchizedek, and that's Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Hebrews 10, 1 through 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, holiness is not just a metaphysical idea. It's not just a thought. It's not just something we aim for. We are really physically pure and spotless before God. It's as if we had never sinned. That's incredible. That's what Jesus does. That's what religious ritual did not do and cannot do. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 9, where it says that the ceremonies, it says, the ceremonies in the tabernacle, this is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. It was an illustration at the present time when the writer of Hebrews wrote it, and it still stands as an illustration for us today. It's good you're here this evening, but if you're attending church this evening and you have not repented, your sin remains, and you will not gain entry to the holy place, to heaven. Repentance means in your mind you turn away from sin. Sin has lost its attraction to you. In fact, you need to realize that sin means death. Sin is not small and inconsequential. Your church attendance alone is mere ceremony, and church attendance alone does not save. Your sin remains if you've not repented and placed your trust in Jesus. You remain separate from God. You may pray. You may read your Bible daily. You may do your best to, to do good things, but these things do not make you pure. And unless you can stand before God with a clear conscience, you will be condemned. But praise God that Christ, in Christ alone, he can physically, really purify you. 
So you can see that many humans find themselves in a desperate situation. No matter how good they are, they remain guilty before God. People may faithfully attend church. They may even serve in church, and they can still end up in hell. People can pray. They can use their money wisely. They can read their Bible again, even daily, yet their sin remains. Only Christ can save. Paul in Romans chapter 7 was complaining about this vicious cycle of wanting to and desiring to and trying to do good, but he realized his sin remained. He cried out, what a wretched man I am. He asked, who can rescue me from this body of death? He knew that he couldn't do it. How about Martin Luther? We just celebrated 500 years of the Protestant Reformation that God used Martin Luther to initiate. Now, Martin Luther, he had this live, living fear of hell. He knew God punished sinners, and he knew he was a sinner. He became a monk to try to achieve salvation. He wanted to get rid of his pride. So as a monk, he volunteered for the most menial of tasks. And, you know, obviously he didn't have to do this, but he would go, he would leave the monastery and go out into the streets and beg for bread, just to, just to humble himself, just try to get rid of the pride. He would shut himself up in a cell and fast to try to gain holiness. He was so aware of his sin, uh, the story goes, that he would spend hours in confession. One pastor was preaching on Martin Luther and said that when, the, when Martin Luther would come, the priest would run. They didn't want to spend hours listening to his confession. He would confess even, even if he thought about thinking about something impure. He was torturing himself. And I'm not even telling you half of what Luther did to try to obtain holiness. But listen to what he himself wrote. Luther wrote this. He says, I torment myself to death to procure peace with God for my troubled heart and could find peace nowhere. After his conversion, looking back, he wrote, if ever a monk got to, got to heaven by monkery, I would have gotten there. But Luther was converted. When he was a professor at the University of Wittenberg, he was lecturing on the book of Romans, and he was studying this passage, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. And listen to Luther's own words on his conversion. Luther said, I hated the word righteousness of God, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. And then Luther wrote about how he hated God himself. He would rage at God. He was troubled at, at, at the, just the, the, the constant condemnation for which, as far as Luther was concerned, there was no escape. But Luther wrote that for some reason, though, he, he, he stuck with it. Something inside him made him want to know what Paul meant. And so back to Luther's own words where he wrote again, he wrote, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. In it, in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And Luther was converted when he realized that righteousness was a gift from God by faith in Christ. Paul himself, after his desperate plea, came to this conclusion in Romans chapter 7. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord.
There is mercy available. So let's look together at Christ. Why can Christ accomplish what good behavior and fasting and prayer and pilgrimages and church attendance and animal sacrifice, even being a monk, reading the Bible, what any religious tradition or ritual cannot accomplish? Well, four reasons. First of all, because Christ is holy in ancestry. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Christ is holy in ancestry. Hebrews 9, 11 says, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. You see, the Levitical priests were descendants of a human, Levi, and due to their human ancestry, they died. And therefore, the sacrifices they performed were limited in what they provided for the worshiper. Jesus, on the other hand, is from heaven. And therefore, it's recorded of him in Hebrews 1.8, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. You see, in Jesus himself is life. In Jesus himself is forgiveness. And since Jesus is from heaven, with no beginning and no ending, the power and the effect of his sacrifice last forever. Second reason Christ can accomplish what good behavior, religious tradition, fasting, prayer cannot is because Christ is holy in nature. Look at Hebrews 9.12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Remember the Levitical priests, they had to first offer a sacrifice for their own sin before they offered a sacrifice for the worshipers. See, but Jesus had no sin. Therefore, it's also recorded of him in Hebrews 1.8, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Now, the scepter is a symbol of sovereignty, and sovereignty means independent power. You see, Jesus was not dependent on the blood of animals for cleansing of his sin. Jesus was independent of any intermediary, because Jesus himself is holy. The scepter is also a symbol of authority and power. The holiness of Jesus himself gives Jesus alone the ability and the lasting power to forgive sin. Jesus has power and authority because of his holiness to forgive sin. Well, then in Hebrews 9.13, we have a, a sentence which sets the stage for the transference of the holiness of Jesus to the sinner. Verse 13 says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Now, remember, God requires holiness through and through. He requires actual physical holiness. That's why faithful church attendance, daily Bible reading, bedtime prayers, participation in church programs, and outreach, or being baptized, those things alone, they're outwardly okay, but they don't cleanse your soul. Therefore, Christ offers a holy sacrifice. Look at verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 9. How much more then with the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, 
Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. You see, when God looks at humans on Judgment Day, when God looks at humans today, if he sees any sin, that is a guilty conscience. That person may not feel guilt today. That person may not be aware of guilt. They may not acknowledge their guilt before God. But anyone who has sin that's unforgiven is guilty before a holy God. Now, Jesus is holy. Jesus is unblemished, and he offered himself to the cross. And then God raised him to life. And Jesus gives the repentant sinner himself, his holiness. And Jesus is the only one who can offer holiness to us guilty sinners. Therefore, Christ offers a holy inheritance. Look at verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 9. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Christ is mediator of a new covenant because through his blood, he purchased the promises of the new covenant. Now, the new covenant is outlined for us in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. And it says this, God says, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So the new covenant, first of all, is Christ in us. It's, 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 it's the will of God inside us, in our minds and hearts. The new covenant is the Holy Spirit in us. And with that, God marks out believers as uniquely his. He in us. He is our God. We as his children. And the new covenant is unity in Christ. When you go to Coventry and meet a Christian... That person knows Jesus. When you go to Korea and meet a Christian, that person is known by Jesus. You don't have to teach them. They already know Christ. And Christianity is now personal and intimate. It's not a matter of ceremonies and sacrifices. And Christians the world over have all received from Christ the promised eternal inheritance. Now, 1 Peter 1.15 says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Jesus called you if you're a Christian. He chose you to be his. And he sustains you. He is in you if you're born again. He himself empowers you. Look again, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 9 this time. You see, there it says the new covenant will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. See, under the new covenant, God promises he will never turn away from you if you believe. You will receive the eternal inheritance. And Jesus, who called you into an eternal relationship with himself, is holy. So your inheritance is holy. What does that mean? 
Well, imagine your grandfather, imagine your grandfather is filthy rich and he dies and because you were his favorite grandchild, he leaves you his outrageous riches. What will you inherit? Well, you will inherit something resembling the first covenant. Hebrews 7.18 calls the first covenant weak and useless. Hebrews 8.13 describes it as obsolete and aging. You have inherited a donut spare. Why? Well, because like the first covenant, all that wealth is not able to clear the conscience. Yet, through faith in the blood of Jesus, you receive from Jesus his physical holiness. You gain by grace acceptance from God. You receive a clear conscience. And because God promised in Hebrews 8 9 never to cast believers aside under the new covenant, the gift of Jesus' holiness is yours forever. Because the life of Jesus will never end, and it's because it's his life that empowers you and keeps you holy, you will never lose that holiness. The holiness of Jesus is imputed to you. That means when one places faith in Christ, the righteousness of Jesus is credited to your account. And it remains in your account forever. That's glory. So God has replaced the shadow with the reality. The reality is Jesus. Jesus is received by faith. And the Christian is possessed by Jesus' holiness from the day he confesses his sin and places faith in Jesus till forever. So tonight we have to examine ourselves and ask ourselves this question. As you journey through life, what are you driving on? The donut spare or the full-size tire? Do you have ceremony or do you have Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you speak so clearly, so finally, so gracefully through Christ. Father, please allow us to honestly examine ourselves that we may know for sure whether or not we have a clear conscience before you. Amen.